This is the European Tours Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton. Hello there, welcome once again to the European Tours Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton with me, Andrew Carter, but again, rather more importantly, with a key figure, a great from the game of golf uh, for every episode. And this week we are in the home of golf, we're in St Andrews, and we are talking to Martin Keimer. Martin, uh, I was going to say good morning, but it's not at all. Good afternoon, how are you? Good afternoon, very good. I played 18 holes today in St Andrews, a beautiful day, could be worse days on the golf course or in any job really. Yeah exactly, this is when you, uh, when you know it's, uh, it's quite a good job. Although we're here um, at the start of the Dunhill Lynx week, so just after the Ryder Cup and I would imagine, go straight in there, it must have been, was it difficult for you watching it? <laughs> or, or are you one of these people perhaps who says, I'm not even going to watch it? Nah, mm. okay, well the first question if it was difficult, yes of course it's, it's difficult because I'm, I'm passionate about golf in general, I'm passionate about the sport and uh, I really, really loved being in those situations when it comes down to the Ryder Cup. So I know how much it, it means to me, especially I had some vital roles in previous Ryder Cups and I know, I know how much you can learn as a person, how much you grow as a person in in those three or let's say five days because really it starts already on Tuesday, Wednesday. It was very weird to watch and not not being there because it was so normal for me to be there. You know, since 2008, I was invited as a special guest on Nick Faldo and I almost made the team myself, only 10 or 12,000 euros. I was behind the, I think it was the 10th guy back then. I think he had only two picks. Yeah. Um, and since then I was there all the time. So and it was very strange and I, I think I took it for granted a little bit. Seeing it this year on TV was really, was a wake up call that is not normal and it sounds, I mean it shouldn't sound arrogant but it, it was a bit normal for me in the past and it makes you realize, okay, you know, you, you really need to work hard to be one of the best players in Europe, top 12 in Europe and uh, makes me slowly realize again that I need to, that I want to be there again, in a very visual way, you know. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this is more a, a look back at your life, so we'll do all that and more. But just one more thing on the Ryder Cup: Were you surprised when you looked at the strength of the American team that it was such a big win for for Europe? Everyone was saying, I suppose, the course was was suited to the Europeans. Uh, I think the course was was definitely um, more suited for the European teams because the, or the team, the American guys, you know. But they don't play those kind of golf courses. We do that uh, occasionally, um, either or. Even though some of the European players that play more in America these days, but still, you know, it's a lot about shot making and really scramble around and trying to hit fairways as much as possible. And American players are not used to that. But I was surprised um, once the Americans were down, how little fight there was. Mm. I was expecting more passion, more fight from the American guys. That's, I don't know if they, they had it, it just didn't look like it. That they really wanted to come back from that, um, what was it, 5-3 after the Saturday morning, I think. Yeah, 3-1 and then 4 and so, so I'm doing the math in my head here, 5-3, five, five, yeah. So I, I was missing that, that will, really, you know, to come back and, and fight to, to get back in, in the lead. And then after that Saturday uh, afternoon session, it seemed a bit that 
that they maybe even already have, have, have given up. Mm. That's the way it seemed a little bit. Um, so I was a bit surprised about that. And then it was just a matter of how well can, can the Europeans be staying, or how, how well can they stay focused and continue their play. And yeah. they did that very well to just not thinking, okay, we are 10-6 in front, it will be um, a gimme. It's never a gimme. And it didn't look like it after an hour and a half or two hours into the singles. So they really kept everything collected and worked very well together. Yeah. Let's go back to the start then. So born 1984, is that right? Correct. Dusseldorf or Metna? Correct, it? Dusseldorf, yeah. Yeah, Dusseldorf, okay. Uh, all good so far, factually correct. Um, when did you start playing golf then? You were 10 or so, right? Yeah, I was 10, 11 years old. And my brother and me always wondered why my dad was gone over the weekends. So, so he long. was the he was the golfer then. He yeah, he started maybe five six years before my brother and me started playing golf. And was that quite? How big was golf in Germany at that time? Well, it was seen as only posh people played, and it was almost embarrassing for me. I I still feel a bit embarrassed these days to say that I play golf. Mm. I don't know why I still do because I do a decent job at it, and I should be quite proud of what I've achieved and of course I am but still being in Germany when I go to bars or restaurants it's and not I meet, cool yeah it's not seen as something cool you know in other countries when you go to Great Britain America um, I think the people the culture appreciate golf more mm. um, and that is I think just a lack of knowledge from um, um, from my country which is not a bad thing there's no judgment involved there if good or bad but it's just you know we have football Obviously, the UK also have football, but golf is so much bigger in those countries than in my country. Yeah. Okay, so you, so you took it up, despite all the peer group pressure and people thinking you're not cool. You still <laughs> took it up. Well, you just went along with your dad and your brother, Philip, who manager, uh, two years older than you, is it? Yeah, two and a half years older. Yeah. yeah, we started then when we were, I was 10, 11, my brother 13 or so. And at the beginning, I didn't really like it because it was so difficult. Mm. And I was playing football a lot and other sports, go-karting and all those things. And then um, I, uh, obviously, as a child, you know, you just want to play. And when you can play with your brother and with some of the other friends, automatically you become better because there was some kind of a talent. But as a child, you just play and have fun. And then uh, I became better and better. And then all of a sudden you see yourself in a national team five, six years later. And so it was tough to avoid having success. Were you competitive with Philip? Because two years older, he must have been, and he's a you know, good player himself, so mm -hmm. were, you, were you beating him quite early on or quite quickly? No, the first five years were pretty much, he was always a bit ahead. And then when I was 16, I think I overtook him because his interests were a bit different. Um, you know, he's a smart one from, from the both of us. He went to school um, easily. He studied so he has a different, uh, he had a different path. Uh, I, I went that more sporty path, and I was more that the guy who needs to be outside and just always moving. And yeah, so when I was 16, I think I overtook him just because I played more and I wanted it yeah. to play more. Was there a, a choice? Because I know you're a good footballer. You mentioned karting as well, which brings its own troubles later in life. But I mean, uh, was football an opportunity? Did you, did you have that? Were you good enough, do you think, to make it as a footballer? I would like to say that I was good enough, but uh, but who knows? You know, I'm I'm pretty confident in saying that if I try or if I decide to do something, I put everything into it, 
and I also and also the other uh, the other way around. You know, when I when I decide to stop doing something, I focus on the thing that I want that I want to do instead of regretting or doubting my my decisions. So football, I would have given everything I had the same way I put it into golf. So who knows um, where I could have gotten to? But uh, but golf was for me. I don't know. I I had the decision. What do I do? This or that? And I don't know. My heart and deep down, everything told me to golf. A striker, defender, midfielder. No, I was the guy who was deciding the games. I was a striker. Really, obviously. <laughs> Why am I not surprised by that? Uh... Well, it's. I think it it helps me also for the golf. You know, I was an aggressive footballer. Mm. I needed to see success. And as a striker, you have the success in. Uh, you make the goals. You know, obviously defenders, they have the success in, in different ways. And I think in golf, it's about results and being aggressive, being confident. And I think some parts of that football past helped. But it's so different. I mean, the ultimate team sport and the ultimate sort of individual sport as well. So very different feelings in both of them. Yeah, but for me, it was an advantage because I know um, that I don't rely rely on anyone else. I just need a little bit of help from from my parents and from my brother, the support. Um, obviously, becoming a professional athlete in whatever sport you choose, you need some support if it's financially or other supports emotionally, whatever it is. And unfortunately, I had that. Mm. Actually, early on in your uh, career, you would have met up with Fanny Sunison because when we were speaking to her for this podcast, she mentioned you and said that she helped younger golfers. She got together with a sort of German federation, was it? And is that how you met her? Yeah, but that was the time when I got when I got to the national team. Funny, she was invited by our coach to show us the strategy, golf strategy, how to play golf courses, um, what to look for when you see golf course for the first time. And then her and me, we got along very well. Um, we had a very good chemistry, good connection. And I asked her a lot of a lot of questions, and then she helped me when I started turning pro, what to do, the right things to do. And you still talk to her. I mean, she's something of a psychologist as well, Fanny, is she? Is she's it? a very nice woman, you know. Mm. She's a very nice person to be around with, very knowledgeable, very wise, very calm, and very helpful. She was always, you know, I would call her part of my family because she got we got very close over the last uh, yeah, almost 15 years now. So, give us an exclusive on the Life on Tour podcast. Is she is she your next caddy then? Is she coming out of caddying retirement to do that full time for you? No, I don't think so. Because you know, sometimes it would it changes relationships, mm. and I, th you th you, I think you shouldn't mix too many things. The relationship that we have now um, is very very good for both of us. So I don't think it would be a good good thing to do. Okay, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you're, you, I mean, you, as you said, you're obviously rapidly improving, getting into the national setup as well. So, when did you suddenly think, actually, this could be more than just a hobby? It could be a career for me. Uh, 2005, I played the qualifying school in, in Germany, the first stage, and it was 1,800 euros to enter, and I didn't really have the money, and uh, I didn't really want to ask my parents. So, uh, the captain from my old home club. He believed that I could actually could do well. This Metman? No, there, there was in Bergeschland. There was a different golf course oh, okay. that I played after Metman because um, they had a better team. They played in the first league and stuff. And so, anyways, and that captain said, you know, I will give you the eighteen hundred euros that you can you, you can compete. And you know, I was I was still fairly young. I was only twenty one or so. 
and I didn't really know if I can really, no, I was 20, yeah. I didn't really know if I can really make it. And then without much effort, I won the first, um, the first stage in Germany mm. um, by quite a lot of shots. And then it made me realize, you know, without needing a lot of luck or not needing to do something special, I was winning against some other guys who want to pursue that goal or that, that path. And I thought, okay, second stage was no problem either. And then I thought, okay, you know, if I continue what I'm doing, and that was just subconscious. I wasn't conscious. I was too young to understand. And that was a good thing. That's an advantage at that time. Yeah. So, and then I continued playing from there. Was that a surprise to you, the, the transition? Because Podrick Harrington on, on this podcast has talked very interestingly about the transition from amateur to pro and how some people get overfazed by it and think it's more difficult than it actually is. But to you, it came quite easily. I think it's a personal thing. I think you need to be okay with being alone. And as an amateur, you're not used to be alone at tournaments. You go with other guys, you go with the national team, you share rooms. And you need to learn, if you don't have it already, to be okay and comfortable. Not, not only okay, to be comfortable traveling by your own and doing things on your own. Yeah. My first year as a professional, I choose on purpose. That was my uh, EPD tour year, the lowest tour there in Germany, to play all my practice rounds by myself because I didn't want to have the distraction because there's so much chit-chat and just, sorry, but so much bull being talked in practice rounds that you don't keep the focus. Because, you know, my parents, they were paying for the traveling, the costs for so many things, and I felt bad by not trying or preparing as good as I could. So I was okay, and I found a very good way for myself to be on my own and use it in a positive way that I was always ready once the tournament starts because I didn't want to waste any time on those lower tours. I want to get to the point where I can take care of my own life mm. financially and in, in, in many other ways because obviously my parents also worked for a reason that they have a comfortable life once they are done working and I, don't want, I didn't want to be the reason that they cannot go on vacation in mm. 10 years. So, But that's just how I felt. But I think what Podrink... Um, is referring also to is as that being being alone, not lonely, but being alone that you need to understand and accept. Actually, when you talk about your your father, there one thing I glossed over when you were growing up. Did he make you practice without tees, even when hitting driver? Is that right? So hit everything off the. Well, it was not mean. It was just you know one way to make my brother and me to understand what golf is about. That it's a game. Mm. There's a game to be played, and you can play it in many different ways. And we also, when we were very young, we also always played from the tips, you know, from yeah. the white tees. And then in tournaments, we could play two or three tees ahead, and the golf course felt easier. I think it was just a psychological thing. Without a tee hitting driver from the, from the deck, then all of a sudden, in a tournament, you have a tee, so everything becomes easier. So, uh, and it still helps me these days. And those things, you know, those are... Now you realize how nice they are and that you were so lucky to have someone who could teach you in a way like this without knowing much about golf and the techniques, just things about the game, that you can play the game in many different ways. It's a fine balance between getting things right in terms of toughening up your children uh, but also not being that overbearing parent. I mean, everyone talks about how... Tiger Woods was sh shaped by, by Errol Woods and all the intense sort of mind training that he gave him. So it sounds like you got the sort of 
the best of the toughening up without any sort of uh, without going too too much overboard. It was always very healthy yeah. and very fair. Yeah. Obviously, other things in our upbringing they were quite hard, they were quite strict, but it was always fair. Mm. And I think to find that balance of not being mean but still trying to educate your children as good as you think um, is very difficult. But as long as it's fair, you always have an option. You have a choice. Mm. So I think. I'm not a parent, but it's uh, it's probably the toughest job in the world, and uh, you can only try your best. And I think our parents they did a good job. So you say you got to the the EPD tour, which is a sort of development tour, mm -hmm. a couple of stages maybe below European tour. Yeah, and third, third level probably. Third level, yeah. You're a third division golfer at this Correct. stage, but you're not really because what 59 you shot in the Habsburg Classic was that? And yeah, that was my fifth or sixth um, EPD tour event. Um, I think I played only eight, and I won three or four of them. Mm. And then I got an invite to the Challenge Tour event in Germany. Yeah. And uh, that was quite critical that time. And I, and I won that Challenge Tour event, and that got me then onto the Challenge Tour. But EPD Tour was just a short phrase. Yeah, but uh, again, at every stage you've been at so far, you f are finding things, you know, even though they're not, you're finding things fairly easy, fairly comfortable. Yeah, because I was not conscious about what I was doing. <laughs> I was, it was for me so normal mm. to just do, I, I, I think I was just, for me it was so planned out, if you do the right things, it's impossible not to have success. And I had, I had no distraction of my goals. You know, I, don't, I didn't have any responsibilities in terms of the need to take care of other people. It was just about me. Mm. But back then, again, I was not conscious about what I have. I was just doing what felt right and it's so simply said that you should do that always. But obviously circumstances changed. And back then, being only six months on the EPD tour, getting onto the challenge tour was for me pretty normal. That's the way it was supposed to be. And then the next step is what you win the Vodafone challenge. Is that your first time on the challenge tour winning that? I mean, that was a big title. That was in was Germany just, as well. So It was just 20 minutes from my home, yeah. That was quite big. And that was a tournament where my brother carried for me also. Yeah. And, uh, and that got me... They got me the card to play on the Challenge Tour for the rest of the year. Yeah. But I was running out of tournaments almost to have a category or to be in the rankings. You know, I think you need at least six tournaments. And I think there were only seven tournaments left. So, and the seventh was that final. So I need to play all the way through in order to secure my European Tour card for the next year if I would play well enough. That must have been a, a, an emotional win for various reasons. You see your brother in the bag and family been there and I know your mother was, was unwell at that time as well, but everything coming together it must have felt like the biggest win in, in your life. Um, it, was the, it was the weirdest win of my life because there was a time where my mom got really sick and there was a time where you really do not care about golf. Right. And that's the beauty sometimes, you know, those are two opposites. You can either play and be very successful when you're very, very focused, you know, when you're in that bubble and nothing can really hold you back from success, or when you're super, super upset because then you just don't care. So, and that's why that, that win was very um, ah, meaningless in terms of life. Mm -hmm. In terms of golf success, it was huge. So somehow, you know, I use the negativity in a positive outcome in, in my golf life. 
Yeah, it's interesting because obviously a lot of us watch sportsmen and women competing and just see them as these performers who are playing and playing to win. But um, there's obviously far more often going on behind the, the scenes that we don't we don't know about. How, how was the transition to the European Tour then? Because that was the next step, and suddenly you're on the well the big stage. But did you automatically feel at home? No, I can remember my it was my second tournament on the European Tour. I played in Hong Kong. And it was Padre Harrington and Lee Westwood that were on the putting green. And I was just looking around and I was I was by myself on the putting green. I didn't know who was getting for me. I had a local caddy or so. This, sorry, this is 2007, is the first That was 2000. That was winter 2006. So it was right, yeah. October, November 2006. And um, I was just looking around. I felt awkward being in their way on the putting green, you know, because those are the guys who played Ryder Cups and whatever they have all won. Um, and I didn't really feel like that I should belong there and then it took me quite quite some time to realize that it's okay that there's a reason that you're there you know because you have done well even though it didn't really felt like they have done something special but it was and then 2007 that was my first year on the European tour and even then it took me three four months to really understand that I was a member of the European tour but the five events you missed the cut in your first five events would that be about right was it only five? <laughs> Did you think it was I more? thought, yeah, well, there was one tournament in Indonesia. I was third, four holes to go, and I and I finished with uh, three bogeys and a triple bogey. You gotta let it go, Martin. And I missed. I I did now, but back then I got already text messages after the round congratulating me for my first cut, and I just made triple. So that got stuck in my mind. Um, but those are good memories now, you know. But it does take you some time to get used to the the new environment. But you improved quickly because you were the Henry Corden Rookie of the Year. Um, mm. So what was, the, what was the thing that clicked for you? Was it just, again, getting used to the environment and feeling that you did actually belong out there? Um, yeah, I think it took me five, six months to understand that I actually made it within, what is it, yeah, 12 months that I made it from being an amateur to, to a European to player. Some maybe I'm not smart enough. It takes me a little bit to understand that and to really reflect on how I got there. And then pretty much from May, May June onwards, I, I played well and I could feel comfortable on the golf course and I could play aggressive and free. I was playing with a handbrake a little bit on the first few months and then I could play free. And I gave myself actually decent chances to win my first tournament. Well, your first tournament actually came Abu Dhabi, 2008. But this is this is a classic golfer thing to do if you've competed at all at any level. That you started to think, started to think about your victory speech when you had a good lead. Is that true? And then you nearly afraid. lost it. Yeah, you're afraid. Yeah. I was. Um, I packed only one pair of shoes that week. I, I know, and I, I wore the same shoes every day. And I thought on Sunday. You know, hopefully people don't realize that I wear the same shoes again four days in a row. Things like this, you think mm. about it, it's so useless. Mm. And it's so, but that is what you do. And then you just want to defend your cushion of lead. You just want to defend it instead of trying to continue. And everybody says, you know, you should continue playing the golf. But do you really do when you win your first event? No, you don't. You're a liar. You don't do that. And uh, so... I was, yeah, you're afraid of, of losing that success that you already have in your mind. You know, you have that win already in your mind and you're afraid of losing that. Um, 
And fortunately, in the end, I think I won by three shots, but it didn't never really felt like it because it was Poulter and Westwood, I think, behind me. And those, obviously, are decent players, yeah. Yeah. I mean, another win that year was in, in Munich in the BMW International, which, again, was a very emotional win, which I remember you saying, you know, to the camera, this is for you, you were talking to your, to your mother at that time. So that was, a, again, a big win, which... A little bit like the win you'd had um, on the Challenge Tour. It must have been a strange win as well. Yeah, we just came from the US Open from uh, Torrey Pines. And I got home, or I got to Germany on Monday. And on Tuesday night, uh, I got a phone call from my dad that it was time to come home. Um, and then I drove home from Munich to, to, to Dusseldorf. Stayed there for a couple of nights, skipped the Pro-Am. And then, uh, but I still felt right for different reasons to play the tournament. So I drove back to Munich and I played the first two rounds with Bernhard Langer and I played well. Um, didn't care much, but I played well. And then um, on Sunday, I think I was leading by five or six shots going on to the back nine, I think, or let's say 12, 13 holes to go. And I didn't play really well. It was, it was too much for me, you know, it was too much to handle. And uh, in the middle of the round, I didn't really care what happens. And then I thought, I mean, if you don't care, then you can go home. Why do you actually? Why are you here? So mentally, it was kind of like a roller coaster. And then, two, three holes before before we were done, I really wanted to win. And then, fortunately, I finished decent, and I was in the playoff. And that was the first time in my career, standing on that tee box on the 18, in the playoff, knowing 100% that I will win the mm-hmm. tournament. So that was a beauty about the power of your um, of your mind. You know that you know how the, the playoff will turn out. And fortunately, that's the way it happened. I mean, that's an exceptional case, that tour, because of what was going on with your, your family. But that does show the sort of roller coasters, the, the, the emotion that you were going through in that round and how they can affect your game. It's extraordinary golf. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And how, how unimportant golf can be. Mm. So in the end, you know, you re- really realise deep down how important actually the sport is. You know, it's just hitting a ball from A to B and trying your very best. That's all it is. Mm. And that ultimately gave me more, more success in the future, knowing the, where I put golf in my life, which, you know, obviously some people, they can, if you want to put it in a negative way, they say, you know, he doesn't care as much as you should. But that's, that's not true. You care more, but in a different way, mm. in a more healthier way. So, and that makes you place golf in a more healthier uh yeah. You have the right perspective. I think so, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and that year, you've touched upon it already, but very, very close to making the Ryder Cup team for Valhalla in 2008. Um, and then you were taken along by Nick Faldo in a sort of observation role. How was, how was that experience? It was fantastic because I was not ready to play the Ryder Cup that no? year. No, I was too young. It would have been too much. I mean, within 24 months, being an amateur, to playing the Ryder Cup, I didn't think that at that time, but when I was there in Valhalla, I knew I, w- I wouldn't have been ready. So when you missed out, you were frustrated, but you got to Valhalla and saw the scale of it and, and saw everything that it demanded of you, and you thought, actually, I'm quite glad just to be watching this time. Uh, I wasn't frustrated. I was a bit sad. Mm. Um, 50% sad and 50% relieved. So, and, I, and I asked myself, why am I relieved? That's where you want to be. How can you be relieved? And then I didn't, I didn't find answers. And once I got there and watched watch the Friday and Saturday, I knew 
that's why I was relieved because it would have been I wouldn't have performed the way I would have liked to because um, I'm the kind of guy you know I need to know that I belong there mm. that there were reasons why I am there and then um, 2010 it was fantastic for me to see everything and and really understand what the Ryder Cup is about. But that 2008 Ryder Cup is quite a strange one to to be in as an observation role because it was one of the rare ones for Europe that things kind of broke up a little bit and there was a little bit of disenchantment and it just didn't work for a, what was still a talented group of players. Yeah, but back then, you know, I didn't know the players. I didn't know that this was going separate ways because I didn't have anything to compare it with. You know, I was just a young boy watching 12 great players, listening to legends of the game and being overwhelmed by everything. So I didn't really know where to put it. And yeah, all those things that happened then, the good things and the bad things, I didn't really understand. It was I just took only the positives really out of that week for me. So you continue to, the next year in 2009, continue to develop uh, wins in uh, France and Scotland. Mm-hmm. I told you we'd get on to the go-karting and how dangerous it was. Mm. So you, that was, it was that year you broke three bones in your foot, was it? Yeah, I was, um, I was leading the European out of merit that year, 2009, yeah. after those two wins. Because there were big tournaments, Scottish Open and French Open. And I had a decent season already leading up to those events. So you thought, I'll just kick back, relax with some karting, and everything will be fine. Was this back in Germany? Was this no, that was in, that was in Arizona. Um, had you always continued your, your go-karting from... I enjoy your, it, yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, in our German history, we have a lot of good Formula One drivers, and in general, that karting sport was still big, and I, I did a car, karting uh, week in the summer camp once, and I really enjoyed it, and then I started, I raced in one race, and I won it, and I thought, oof, okay. So I had a passion for it. And then in Arizona, it was a was a day where you can go, you know, as long as you want. It's like a um, how's it called? You pay twenty five dollars, and you can race as long as you want. Um, and my brother and me, we went. Didn't have anything else to do because we didn't want to play golf every single day. And then it was just a matter of time that something happens. I could feel it because there was too many crazy people out there who couldn't drive. And yeah, it was that long turn. And I don't know for whatever reason, the girl stopped in front of me and full power. I hit that girl full, and I thought my knee was was completely screwed up. The pain was immense, so I hit with my fist. I hit against the steering wheel because I wanted to get away from the pain in my knee and my foot. Yeah, and I couldn't take the shoe off, and I went to the doctor. I had a surgery in America and all those things, and then the tough one was the phone call to my dad. That was a tough part. Do you have to make sacrifices when you're a professional sportsman. Lots of sportsmen have it written in their contracts. They can't do other sports. They can't go climbing or skiing or whatever. Mm-hmm. So do you limit sort of the normality of your life? Do you, do you do not do things that you would like to do because you have to focus on your... Do you still kart, for example? Do you still go kart? Yeah, I still do, but I drive scared now. And then last time I drove, I thought, Martin, that's useless. That is completely useless to drive like that. And uh, I need to wait until the time is right again. But I still do the stuff that I like to do. It doesn't matter how dangerous it is because as long as you respect um, the difficulty and everything around it is fine. I started skiing three years ago and I never fall in my life so far, um, even though I started only three years ago. But I think you need to respect it because mm. I want to enjoy other things and playing golf also. And uh, that was just a very unlucky time, yeah. It's yeah. okay. But it made me a better putter because I had only six weeks of putting. That was all I could do. Well, you came back and you finished third in the in the order of merit. So, mm-hmm. 
And then next year, so you go on, you obviously love Abu Dhabi because you go there and, and, and win again. And, and 2010 was kind of the breakthrough year in terms of the major. So let's go to Whistling Straits mm -hmm. and tell us about that week and how it developed for you. Whistling Straits was all, all about making the Ryder Cup team. I know I was getting close. I need a decent week, and I'm in the Ryder Cup team. So that's all you, you. When you go to the USPGA Championship, you're not thinking about that tournament itself. You're thinking about the Ryder Cup team. Yeah, because I was not. I was never close in a major before. Mm. You know, I thought my time was not there yet. And then on that Sunday, I still was four or six shots behind Nick Watney. He was leading after three days, and I had a decent start. And then obviously, I saw myself on the leaderboard on the sixth hole. I said to Craig. You know, we, lead, we are leading the major. You know, whatever happens today, I can say that I led a major championship in my career. So, so did you not feel that you, even at this stage when you've had lots of wins in the European Tour, did you not feel that you kind of were ready to win a major? Even during that round, you're saying, look, here, I'm leading, that's, that's almost good enough. I think subconsciously I knew I was good enough, but consciously I didn't want to be that confident towards myself. Mm. So I just wanted to let it and let it happen itself and Craig said to me on the sixth hole well, why don't we finish it off and win it and I thought ah, okay come on we're not there yet let's we still have enough holes to go and even after 16 17 holes I didn't think that I have a chance because I think I was two behind or so and I had an amazing up and down on 18 and I knew when I make that up and down for sure I'm in the Ryder Cup team mm. and I made that up and down I was so happy that I could go to Wales yeah I mean, you get into a playoff, the other people up there, Dustin Johnson was up there and going well, and then you go into a playoff with Bubba Watson. So at these big moments when you're winning tournaments or later on we'll come to the Ryder Cup, you've got the winning play, you always seem to have this clarity and belief that you could win it and could easily see it off. Did you feel confident in that playoff? Yeah, that was the second time. I had a three time in my career. So the first one was in Germany when I won the playoff. The second time was in Whistling Straits where I said to my manager at that time, to Johan, uh, we were sitting um, in the clubhouse, and I said to him, you know, listen, if I play against Bubba, you know, the 10th is a drivable par 4, 17th is a par 3, 18th is a par 4. So drivable par 4, for him, he will get home, he probably makes birdie. I need to pick up a shot on 17, that we are all screwed on 18. So an 18 is then even, and let's see what happens then. So, and that's, I don't know, but that's the way it worked. He made birdie, I made birdie 17, we were all square. And then I chipped out on 18, he went for the green, he hit, he hit in the water, I made bogey to win the PGA Championship. So for me, for me that, that way of trying to win the golf tournament, how to get there was very clear, what you said. But how did I know that? I don't know. And I think you shouldn't even try to find explanations. What were the immediate feelings after winning that? Because... You mean 25, 26 at that mm -hmm. time? Yeah, 25. 25, I mean, still young, and there you are, a major champion. So how long did it take to sort of sink in? Uh, probably until Christmas time or so. It took me a long time. The, the day after, I flew with my girlfriend at that time. We flew to Jamaica to go on vacation, and we had that planned already a couple of months before. And I went, I went onto the plane, and the guy in front of me, um, he had the newspaper out and there was my face on it and I felt so embarrassed. I felt really embarrassed. No, about you didn't. Come on. No, I really, I was not comfortable. I didn't like it. I knew I won a major. Like, I, I knew it. My, I heard the words, but it was too much for me. It was really too much and I felt embarrassed seeing it and people talking to me about it and I didn't like that attention. It's too much for me. 
and uh, and then around Christmas time when I was in America practicing again, people said to me, "Dude, you just won the major. Why do you practice so much?" And then slowly I understood what I've actually done watching watching on on the TV uh, the highlights of the year, watching myself winning the PGA Championship. You know, then it sunk in a bit. It's interesting when you talk about winning a major and feeling a bit embarrassed by the attention. So you were never a person who wanted, as so many people do now, they want to do something to become famous. They want fame. Is that never anything you... Depends on how you want to become famous. I think I'm comfortable by becoming famous through success and showing your talent and doing what you love to do. If you're good at that, that's fine. If you just want to be famous to be famous, that would be my wrong way of becoming famous. Mm. So, and I still struggle these days when people come up to me having or wanting pictures, autographs, being nervous, you know, standing in front of you, the, the camera is shaking. I struggle to understand that. Do you feel like saying, look, I'm just, I'm just, well, I'm just no, for me, it's, you know, I, and I still try to see it as something is part of my life and I need to accept that. But I really struggle to understand because I don't know who, when that would happen to me, what person needs to stand in front of me that I would be shaking. When you were young, would you not? Ernie Els was your hero, wasn't he? Was mm-hmm. he? Not Bernard Langer, I'm, I'm stunned by that. I suppose well, he was a little bit. Ernie was the big guy when you what, were. You want to say older? No, I was going to say older, but then I thought I better not. I respect him too much. But Ernie Els was the, the best guy when you were growing up. Yeah. So if you'd met him when you were young, you'd have been shaking, would you not? I played with him. My, my first BMW International Open in Munich, I played with Ernie in 2003. Mm. And, um, well, I was nervous playing with him because I wanted to show, it's very weird saying that, but I wanted to show him that I'm a good player. Yeah. So, because he was my role model. That's not weird, that's, that's normal. Yeah, but I guess, you know, when you're that young, that's what you do. And, um, and he gave me a nice compliment after the 18th hole. And I was so proud, you know, just playing with him. I also made the cut as an amateur. It was huge for me. And, but I was not shaking, you know, because I, in the end of the day, what we do is, is so simple for us, you know. It's, it's a sport. And we just got so lucky in our past, in our childhood, that our parents showed us different things that we could find our talents. And yes, it was very good of me to see my talent and work on my talent, use it to make a living out of it and live my passion. But I believe when, you know, we got very lucky in that way and sometimes you feel, not, not anymore, but back then I felt a bit guilty of finding that and others don't find it. So that's why I felt a bit uncomfortable for me. So, I mean, one thing you mentioned at the USPGA was that it certainly put you in the Ryder Cup team. So Celtic Manor, tell us about that, because that was a great Ryder Cup. It was a wet Ryder Cup, but it was a, a great Ryder Cup. So what are your memories of that week? Um, there was, I felt very privileged to be on the first tee on Friday morning. Um, it was the first group with Lee Westwood. Mm. I was so happy that I could play with Lee Westwood. Um, and he was injured before that. Six weeks he didn't play golf, and um, he didn't know if he was ready, and but he was certainly ready. He really carried us on Friday and Saturday. We played, I think, two or three matches together, and we got two and a half points, I think. And I was so proud to have him next to me. Mm. And I, but that time again, you know, I, I was okay with being on the team because I earned my way into the team. I won the PGA Championship, so I felt like I deserved to be there. Mm. So, and I really, I, I enjoyed that one, but. Uh, you know, then all of a sudden you're a Ryder Cup player. It's pretty cool. And 
again, the, the sort of progression, there seems to be a steady progression throughout because not only do you go on then to win the, the Order of Merit title, the race to Dubai, but then you win an Abu Dhabi again, that's three in a row, and then suddenly, world number one. There was that position, what, what did you feel like when you became world number one? Because sometimes you talk as if you're very modest and self-effacing and, and feel uncomfortable in the spotlight, and there you are suddenly the best golfer in the world. Did that feel right to you? Well, first of all, I didn't feel like the number one in the world because I think, you know, when you're best in something, you can do anything. You can hit every single shot. You can, you, you have it all, the whole game under control. But I didn't. I could not play a good round in Augusta. I was useless in Augusta. But, and that's what people talk about. They say, well, you tried to just tweak things so you could hit a draw. And was that purely for Augusta? No, it was not purely for Augusta. It was purely for my own um, for my own mind, for my own conscience, developing as a player. 2011, I was the number one in the world, going to Augusta, knowing it will be very, very difficult to make the cut. Mm. And that is not how somebody who's the number one in the world should approach a golf tournament. And that made me realize, okay, the number one is just, you know, it's just a number. Who cares about the number? You need to feel like the number one in the world. If if you are the number one at that time, who cares? And then I needed to talk to my coach, and I said, listen, that's the way I feel, that's the way I want to play golf, what do we need to do? And that will make absolute perfect sense to you and to some people, but to a lot of people will say, well, but this is working for you. Lee Trevino just faded the ball, Monty faded the ball all his, his life, and look at the success that they had, and you were having success, number one in the world, you won the USPJ, so, so but why? But there's a different way of success. There's a success of having results and trophies and money, or there's your own personal success. I was not personally successful as a golf player, and that is important because in 2010, by then, I was financially secured. Mm. I didn't need to look after my money um, as much as I did five, six years before that. So for me, it was, I needed to be personal. It needs to be personal success for me. And, that's, and that is where I realized being the number one in the world was the loneliest time in my life um, because it was so empty. Number one in the world, what does it mean? It means nothing really because it's just the result of the path that it took you or the long 10, 12-year path of full commitment to that result. So I was very proud and very happy how I got there and what I put into it to get to that spot. But the actual number one in the world was for me meaningless. So are plenty of things going on in your head that year? Because you win the WGC HSBC out in China, but apart from that, there were a few struggles. So what was, what was happening? Was that, a, was that a, as a result of trying to tinker with this thing, trying to make you the more complete golfer? No, what we talked about earlier in 2010, when I was all of a sudden I was in the spotlight, I was being seen major champion, and I didn't like that. Mm. Number one in the world is even worse. Mm. You know, all of a sudden you get emails from celebrities, Hollywood stars, you go to nightclubs, you don't have a table, but they clear the table for you and you feel like, why? I mean, yeah, because you're number one in the world. And, and you know, it's difficult to understand. For me, it was difficult. I'm not that kind of guy who thinks that's normal. I get it, why people do it, but I didn't like to be treated like that. So it took me, it was more like a personal understanding acceptance transformation in 2011 and the golf and the golf was not the problem 
the drawing the ball. That was not the problem. But a personal thing to understand your place, your position in the world of golf. Yeah. I mean, so do you think you'd have to be, I suppose, if you won the majors and ascended to world number one and felt comfortable with the adulation and the, the tables and restaurants and people looking at you and adoring you, you'd probably have to be a slightly not normal person to think that is normal, if you like. I think uh, a good way to explain it is when people say, when, when athletes or whoever gets famous, that gets successful, you shouldn't change. You should stay the person you are. I think the opposite, you have to change. You have to change in a way of understanding why people treat you the way they treat you. Mm. There are only three people in my life who treated me the same way before number one and after. Only three people, my, my, par my, my brother, my dad and my coach. Even some people from my family that wanted a picture with me who changed my diapers. Mm. How weird is that? Can so, you spot when they change? Can you, see, can you instantly see when people are being a certain way with you because of who you are rather than because of the, the Martin that, that you well, know? Well, now I can see it. Mm. Now I understand it. Back then I was overwhelmed. Also interviews, I said what, one, what people wanted to hear. You know what people want to hear kind of when you hear the question. Now I answer the way I want to say things. I want to answer without thinking, is it good, is it bad? I don't care if it's good or bad. That's just who I am. And that's, for me, the easiest way to, um, to talk and to show the people when they're interested who I am and what I'm about. So it doesn't feel like work. Back then it was work, because if you need to think what you want to say, it was quite tiring. So when you look at someone like, like McElroy or like Tiger Woods even more so, when you see the life that he has chosen to live and his success has brought that, but it's... It's a life that some people would envy, but not if they actually knew what it was like. Well, you said chosen to live. Have they really choose to live that life? I don't know. When you're two or three years old and you're already in a TV show, do you choose that life? Yeah. I don't know. So I think you need to look beyond that and a little bit more precise that um, when you grew up with that lifestyle, maybe it's easier to deal with it. Maybe it's more normal to deal with it. Mm. For me, you know, I come from a very simple town and I was not in TV shows. That was not what my family was about. So, and there's no judgment if it's right or wrong, but it's just a matter of getting used to it, liking it or not liking it and finding your own way. So then you go on to 2012 and, and so many people know you not for your major successes or for reaching world number one, but for that putt at Medina, completing the miracle of... Uh, of Medina, but you were actually, I mean, you weren't comfortable with your game that week. You said you weren't playing well. Despite that great final moment, was it a, a difficult week for you in some ways? Um, it was, mm, was it difficult. It was difficult after, after Friday afternoon. I, I lost my match. I think I played with Justin Rose, and I didn't play good enough that we had a chance to win that match. And then I was quite, quite okay with sitting out on Saturday because I couldn't help the team. Mm. On Sunday, I knew it was up to me in match play. You can even play okay and you can win. It's just a matter of you know trying mentally, wanting it a bit more than, than the other one. And uh, so for me, that was okay to set out on Saturday. But then Sunday, I really, really wanted to win my match without knowing how important it mm. could get. You've talked about it so many times, I know. But you're over that But How long have we decided that that putt was? Some six feet? Some people say six, some say seven. 
whatever. Some, it was so this yeah six and a half foot part that you had that you never worried about. I mean, for most people, they would go to pieces over the prospect of all the pressure of that part. But you just felt this is a fairly straightforward thing to do. For me, in the situation, you know, having that first part, that is where it started. The first part had an influence on on the second part, or maybe the other way around. Whatever you want to see it. But the first one is I still had the mentality of trying to make the first putt. Mm. So, and that sounds very weird to some people, but I was very lucky that my attitude hasn't changed. So for 17 holes, you try to make every single putt. You try to make them. You don't try to lag anything. You try to make them. So and then on 18, I know I, I needed only two putts, but I wanted to make it. So that's why it was a fairly, yeah, fairly aggressive putt. But I knew standing over the first putt, if I pass it by, it's just an uphill putt coming back, so it shouldn't be too difficult. So for me, you know, it was quite clear what I needed to do, and it didn't seem too difficult to do. And then when it ran by six and a half feet, whatever it was, um, I still thought, well, Stricker still has 10, 12 feet for his par putt. So, you know, I have actually two chances to win that thing. If he misses, it's gone. Hopefully he makes it that I can get the ultimate feeling. That's how I felt, mm. and it's quite great that you, you have that him feeling. To hold the putt. Yeah, because I wanted to get the most out of that situation, and that's the beauty about that situation for for myself that I didn't run away. I wanted the most pressure, the most excitement that you can get in in my career, mm. and I saw everything so clear, and I knew. When Stricker made his, I knew I was going to make mine too. There was a third time in my career that I knew that putt would go in. Yeah. So, and there was not any doubt of, of missing or any doubt of ah, maybe I don't make it because it was so clear. I saw the line and I just let it happen. And it's quite difficult to put into words. That's why it's so special that you shouldn't even try to explain how you thought because it's, it's, a, very, it's a gift. Yeah. that I got in that situation. And I used it in the most ideal ideal way for me personally and obviously the most positive outcome you could have gotten. So when you talk about these moments of clarity and utter confidence, not arrogance, just utter confidence and belief, does your career have peaks and troughs in terms of belief and sometimes there's a great deal of doubt or whatever? 2013 was a, another difficult year on the course for you? Yeah, 13 wasn't great, 12 wasn't great besides that yeah. victory, personal victory and Ryder Cup victory. But uh, yeah, I think it's just normal in careers, you know, that, and people make it too dramatic also. They make it so radical and I understand that by now that people, you know, they want to be entertained, they want to see the best of you and they don't, some, they don't even care why you don't play well. They just pick the best things of you and if you don't play well, then know you're useless or you, you gave up or you're not hungry anymore and all those things and you need to understand that so and that's why 2014 was one of the best seasons of my career in terms of you know just knowing what you want and delivering well you delivered obviously at Pinehurst so tell us about that because a couple of 65s uh, I mean yeah, that, was... and everyone says that was you know sort of the best golf they've seen from any golfer at any time Ah, it's ah, who knows, but I, I mean, I wouldn't put myself in that uh, in that department there. But I, I was definitely surprised myself a bit to be ten under par after two rounds at the US Open. But again, you know, I just played very solid golf and I didn't miss any putt within six or seven feet. 
So, and I putted everything off the green because I thought it was my best chance to give myself chances to save pass, worse, you make bogeys. And it took all the big numbers out. But I did play good golf, obviously. Yeah, I mean, a lot of when majors come down to the, the, down the stretch, people don't know who's going to win. The players don't know until the very end, oh, I've got a great chance here. At what stage in that major did you know you were going to win? I would say on 14 on Sunday. No, no, on 14 on Sunday. On, it, was a, it was a mental challenge. Uh, after two days, I thought, wow, I'm in a great position. I'm leading by a few shots, a major. So there's another chance to win a major championship. Um, and then I continued my own play. I just tried, okay, just continue playing the way you played. And Saturday, what not many people know, was quite difficult because I think the USGA, you know, I'm not sure if they were that nice to me because they put, they know I was fading the ball. I think they put 12 or 13 flags on the left side of the green. Mm. So, and I shot one over par on Saturday. And I was so proud of that one over par because the golf course was already difficult. But with all the pin positions on the left side, I thought, geez, I mean, that's tough for me. Mm. And that was a good success for me to shoot only one over par. When you won that, and actually going back to what you said before, and you had to make the change because you wanted in your head, not for anyone else, but just for you to be able to draw, draw the ball a bit. Were you a more complete player now? Yeah, I was in com- oh, now or already in 14. I was, 14, yeah. I was so... I was not scared of any shot. Mm. I was so comfortable with whatever happens to me on the golf course today, I'm prepared. It's just a matter of committing to it and doing it. And, and just having that within yourself, it gives you a great calmness. Mm. And that was the week where I was the calmest in my whole life because I, I was so conscious and so aware of where and what position I was and what I needed to do. So when you had won the USPGA and you talked about suddenly the, the restaurants open up to you and people are giving you attention, there you are in the newspapers. How did, that, how did winning the US Open compare? Because suddenly you're in the spotlight again. Were you more comfortable with it this time? Yeah, I, I, I felt I won that event. PJ Championship, I didn't really... was overwhelmed, confused, surprised. US Open, I really won because I was dominating the event from Thursday morning to Sunday afternoon. So I felt very proud, very satisfied, and I thought, Martin, that is the ultimate win. That is how you win golf tournaments. And um, I felt I deserved the attention, and I felt okay with the attention, because I also won a big tournament a couple of months before that, the TPC Sawgrass. So it was a great time of the year. Actually, let's go back to that Players' Championship, because that was... uh you know, people say the unofficial fifth major, but it's a big, big tournament, and that was uh, an important win for you. It was an important win for me because Paul McGinley came up to me on Wednesday, and and he said, Martin, we need we need a couple of good weeks from you. I really want you in the Ryder Cup team, and obviously that was the first good week. Saw rest, and when I won, and Paul McGinley was the only one who was waiting for me on Sunday afternoon, um, and we we had dinner together in Saw rest together. And we spoke a little bit about Ryder Cups, and so that was very nice of him. And then, um, yeah, there was a good confidence boost um, for the for the whole year. Yeah, and and traditionally, the U.S. Open finishes on Father's Day, and the the Players Championship is Mother's Day, which again obviously has a lot of uh, emotion for you. Did and Philip sent you? Did he send you a text message during the Players Championship? Did he? Did he? 
I don't know. I've got. Uh, Did you have? New, uh, I've got. I've, nope. got, I've got the details nope. over here. I don't oh, have. <laughs> no, no, I don't. But I mean, it's, it's something that obviously it, me, it meant a great deal to you. Is what I'm trying to say that some wins mean more than others. Of course, they they mean a bit more, and I'm sure, you know, on that's the seventeenth in Sawgrass when I made that huge par putt. It's hard to believe there was only skill. So, knowing that Sunday was Mother's Day, who knows? Mm. Maybe there was a little bit of help. A little bit. Yeah. That was Jim Furyk, wasn't it? Was Jim Furyk there? He was already in the clubhouse. He was uh, waiting with his wife. Yeah, and then um, I still need to make par on 18. And it was so dark. Yeah. I couldn't even see when I on the, when on the fairway on 18. I had an eight iron to the green, and I couldn't see the grass behind the ball. I was, I couldn't put the club. I need to feel the club on the ground, knowing that it's, that I grounded it because it was so dark. It's quite nice playing golf like this. It makes you remind of when you were younger. You're playing yeah. into the darkness, yeah. Yeah, playing until 11 at night. So what about that Ryder Cup that year then? Because you, that, you've said that was your most enjoyable one because yeah. you were playing well and you felt just that everything went perfectly. Yeah, the team was so strong. Uh, strong team. I felt very confident in my game. Um, being in Scotland in general, you know, I like, really, really enjoy playing tournaments in Scotland, winning here a couple of times, having that atmosphere being on top of my game, um, having 11 other strong players behind you, great captain who was very organized and um, he really gave us the confidence and the belief in ourselves. So the whole week was just hard to lose the Ryder Cup, but you still need to deliver it. But for me, it was a very nice week and those three days were fantastic. And just to round up the Ryder Cup chat, if we move forward to Hazeltine, a very different experience and you've talked about it as well how you felt when you earned your way onto the team that it was it was great and uh, was it just a very different feeling at Hazeltine? Yeah, because it was the first time that I had a pick, you know, they were, I got a wild card from Darren Clark and I played well going to the Ryder Cup. I played, I felt confident enough that I can do well and I think I, I did well in um, the whole week. For me it was quite important that I could win my, my single match on Sunday because I thought, you know, I'm 11th again, the way the same number that I was in Medina we were a bit behind on uh, Saturday afternoon, but I thought maybe it could come down to those two, three uh, last matches again. Unfortunately, it didn't get to that point, but uh, uh, they were just better. They just played better golf. Yeah. So 2016, a big year for golf in terms of going into the Olympics, and you as a lover of, of all sports, I mean, everyone talks about how Justin Rose took to it. Obviously, he won the gold medal, but he loved watching all the sports and being part of the village as well. How did you embrace the Olympics? For me, it was similar. I don't know if he stayed in the village during the tournament. He dropped in occasionally and they scattered rose petals in front of him. Fair enough. And now he can with a gold medal. I stayed in the, in the village the whole time because I wanted to see it. I wanted to be part of it. I wanted to experience it, feel it. And it was quite difficult to focus on my own sport. I was so much... I went to the gym sometimes twice a day because I, I just wanted to see them, how they train. I wanted to understand how to become better getting knowledge about how can I improve in my sport, being inspired by them. And I was very tired the whole, <laughs> the whole week um, playing games and other sports on the floor with, with other German athletes. So for me, it was a fantastic week, and, and I look forward to go to Japan. Yeah. Who in particular did you sort of hang out with or, or pick things up from? Well, the gymnastic guys, they were quite impressive. I mean, man, how you can get a body like that and being so flexible and so fit, how you can transform a body. I love that. They're very short though, aren't they? Yeah, but they're very strong and 
the understanding of their own body, you know, understanding how the body works, they have so much knowledge about it. And that is, that was a very inspiring week for me. Just before we round things up and look forward, what do you do when you're not playing golf? We know it's a solitary life and it's a life of airports and hotels and travel. So what do you do when you're not practicing or playing golf? Well, you need to find passions besides golf. You need to find hobbies. And I know it's quite difficult to spend time on your hobbies and your passions because that job is quite time-consuming mm. and and that is already your passion. So 80% of my life I dedicate to golf in one way or the other, whatever I do. But when I'm home, yeah, what do I do? Yeah, well, fortunately, you know, I like to watch other sport events. I like to go see the best in the world, getting inspiration from those things. Um, but I, I also like building in the house a lot. You know, I help my my dad quite a bit because he's building, he's um, uh, renovating his house. And you do it? You do, you're yeah, a DIY, I, DIY man? Are you good with your hands? Uh, what man? DIY. What, how, what does that mean? Do it yourself. Oh, do so, it. I mean, oh, yeah, a bit okay. of uh, See, hammering, a bit of uh, carpentry, a bit of yeah, electrics. We, we have a little shed next to the main house, and that shed needs to be completely renovated and I love going there and helping my dad because my dad he can do everything himself learning that from him you know it's what not many people can do these days Mm. especially the money that we make the people that we surround ourselves with they always call people in to do it for them Mm. and then it never feels like it's really yours you know it's if you do it yourself you have a connection to it you have a relationship to the whole thing you understand so and that is what I what I enjoy doing a lot Do it yourself. There you are. So you could build a DIY. You could build shelves, a shelving unit. Yeah, IKEA is fairly simple. Oh come on! <laughs> but we can do it ourselves. Yeah, I and mean, of course I can do it, and I enjoy it because I don't care how long it takes because I take quite a lot of pride in it to do it properly. That's maybe the German mentality. You yeah. know, if you do it, do it right with good quality that lasts forever. I mm. really enjoy that. How do you say DIY in German then? What is the word for that? There is no word because that's just normal life. But the, exactly, that is normal <laughs> life. Yeah, it is, isn't it? That's what people do. Not if you're lazy. No. No, but or Scottish or incompetent. No, but that is what what I think. What we also forget, you know, that it's easy when you have a certain amount of money on your account. You can just call call somebody, and you let it be done by somebody. But you need to develop and also understand what kind of life you're living. You need to develop your mind also that you can, some athletes, they cannot even put a post, or as I say, like a letter to the post and yeah. send it somewhere. So how is that possible? So without that, I mean, what does it leave you without the sport? Do you a normal man just go down the supermarket yourself? You do your shopping yourself? Just uh... Some people laugh about it. Last week even, there was a couple... They played golf with me when I was younger. They said, listen, we, we can go, we can do the shopping for you. You don't need to come here to the grocery store. I can bring it to your home. I said, well, I enjoy it. You enjoy shopping? I said, yeah, okay. So, and that's the weird thing about it, that people think, how can he enjoy it? How, why does, you know, that I don't understand. And that's the confusing part, that they see you as somebody else. And, and that's what I meant earlier. Does it make you uncomfortable? A bit. It makes you feel a bit strange that people... Makes me, I wouldn't say uncomfortable, but I don't understand. Mm. Just because you're a good athlete, why should you be different in other parts of your life? Yeah. That is confusing for me that people think that way. Okay. Classical music, I'm told. Are you a classical music fan? Oof, that's a stretch, yeah. Is it? 
stretch. Oh. Bit, of, bit of Wagner here and there. <sighs> Wagner, Mozart, Beethoven. Oh, no, it's a bit too much. Yeah. I wouldn't go there. I mean, I wouldn't listen to that in the, in the car. I like Ed Sheeran. Okay, bon Jovi. That, those are, that's not classical music. That's it's far from classical yeah, music. Yeah, there's a bit opposites, yeah. Yeah, that is uh, German soft rock without being Germans. Um, so, right, so looking forward then, because at the moment, you know, we started with saying, obviously, watching the Ryder Cup when you feel you should be there, and we kind of feel you should be there. So where is your your game, and what are your, your goals going forward? Because you're still, for the long career you've had, a young guy, what, 33? Yeah, I think you need to ask yourself the right questions and the right questions that can be sometimes answered well, they need to be answered honestly but they can be quite hard sometimes for yourself. But I think you need to figure out what is the right thing to do right now in order to have success again. And I'm going through that process right now. What do I need to do in order to play better golf again, to play the golf that I want to play and to be successful? So working with the right people, doing the right amount of practice, the right amount of relaxation, all those things that I need to... I have a good plan and I'm, and I'm, I'm on a very good path right now and I'm really enjoying, I'm really enjoying that, um, that development. And I can only say for myself, you know, who knows when the, the success will come, but I'm really enjoying that way of working now that I did 10 years ago, not knowing where it will lead me to, but that working thing, you know, got me to the number one in the yeah. world and now I'm feeling the same thing. Who knows where it will get me, but this is the enjoyable part right now. So what is it that, uh, that, that, that motivates you then? Because you said getting to world number one, that's not really a, a goal to be called the number one golfer in the world. Is it winning the titles again? Because it's not clearly not the fame that you seek. Well, we all have egos, and we all need to feed at one stage a little bit of our ego and feel, um, feel like we need results, you know, we need visual results that whatever we have done was right and I know feel wise it feels right what I'm doing now but at one stage I just want to have a little bit of a proof so of course we need success we need titles and that is what I'm looking forward to that is just a matter of time that it will come because I feel and I know I'm doing the right thing so when it happens I don't know the goal is definitely you know for your career to win the other two majors if I win the other two majors I probably I wouldn't say I quit playing golf because I love it, but I will play less. I wouldn't know what to play for then anymore because okay. um, I have done everything in my career. And winning the Open here at St Andrews, is that... Uh... To be honest, I don't care where I win them. <laughs> if it's St Andrews 2020, it will be very early and it will be a good time. Okay. And did you ever pay back that member, the 1,800 euros, to enter the Q school? Unfortunately, he died. Oh, God, sorry. Let's not end on that. So, <laughs> um <laughs> to answer that question, no, I have not. Okay, um, let's uh, edit that one out. <laughs> Actually, I do want to ask you about it because he remains a friend, but it, you have to make difficult decisions as a golfer sometimes that Craig Conley, we all know well, and has been a caddy for you. And they become a, a part of the team, even though it's an individual sport, but it's a, a, a kind of difficult decision that you had to make recently to try and change something or freshen things up. Um, with Craig, it's a tricky one because, you know, we got very close... Um, as friends the last, whatever, seven, eight years. Obviously, as a caddy, a player relationship, you talk a lot about personal stuff, a lot of stuff on the golf course. When you walk, you know, you spend so much time together. But we could, I think both of us um, felt it coming the last three, four months. Um, things didn't really go well anymore. Picking on each other a little bit here and there, which is, which is not who we are. And then 
um, we tried, we really tried two or three times to have a reset and really go again. It just didn't work. And, you know, in the end of the day, we all need to look after ourselves and what is the best thing for both of us. And obviously in that constellation, I'm the one who needs to make the call. And I was happy to make the call because I felt like now is the right time for both of us to let go and find different ways. If we're going to get together one day again, fine, perfect, hopefully. Um, but for now, I think it was the right decision. Do you now have a knowledge of Scottish football that you wouldn't otherwise have had? I, I with all respect, I think it's one of the most boring leagues in the world. Okay. Just saying, there are only, that, only two teams playing for the win. Um, Not even two teams. Actually, it's a hit. Listen, this season, it's a bit more interesting. So, quite a yeah, few teams. Okay. Well, You've fi- stopped following finally. it, haven't you? You're not interested in it. Oof, no, not much. I get invited many times to go to the stadium, and I would love to go. And I'm sure I'm still invited from Craig. Um, but let's let's wait until the Champions League. Okay, you're talking about Celtic Park rather than Far Hill. Well, yeah, Celtic Park, I was invited. The other, I was not. Okay, excellent. Who's your team? Well, I'm... I'm a supporter of Bayern Munich, mm. but uh, I really like the German national team. I know they had a shocking year, yeah. but I love watching the best football players, having a couple of relationships with the players, you know, knowing them. Um, that is, is, is inspiring. Yeah. I enjoy that. I love it when a German talks about the German team having a shocking year. You should try being Scottish, uh, Martin, because it's, it's not easy. Yeah, but sometimes it's better not to get somewhere in the first place than getting somewhere and really screwing up. Okay. So then you don't, you can't screw up if you don't get there. We shall end on that note with me being belittled by Martin Keimer. Uh, thank you, Martin. Thank you very much, and uh, good luck pleasure. going forward. All right, Thanks thank very you. much. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton. You can get in touch via Twitter and Instagram at European Tour using the hashtag Life on Tour or on Facebook. Subscribe now, and if you enjoyed the show, feel free to rate and review us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts.